We appreciate that reading, Brother Zach. Thank you for doing that for us. There is an abundance of speculations of how many people have ever lived from the beginning of time. How many people have ever lived and how many people have died since God created time, brought the first couple into the world, and from that point to this point, being about 6,000 years, how many people have gone on to their death? Well, the, the numbers are various. I've seen 100 billion. I've seen as many as 150 billion. But I guess there's really no way of ever knowing how many people have come into this world and died. But we know this for sure. Anyone who has ever come into this world has died or will die. That's just the way that life is. There is a beginning and there is an ending. And knowing that, it isn't peculiar, is it, for a person to be born, to live, and to ultimately die, leaving behind the world in which they live. That's not something out of the ordinary. In fact, that is natural, isn't it? It's natural for that to happen, and when it does happen, it is not uncommon. We, don't, we do not enjoy that. We, we do not look forward to it necessarily, certainly for those of whom we love, but it isn't anything out of the ordinary. But, understanding that, Neither is it unique to any one individual to have lived and to have died and then to have been raised from the dead. We read about that in the Scripture. Notice the times that has happened. And I was unfamiliar with the particular number of times that someone had been raised from the dead as recorded in the Scripture, but I... To the best that I can understand, I think I located them. Elisha raised the widow of Zarephath's son from the dead, 1 Kings 17. He also raised the Shunammite woman's son, 2 Kings 4. On one occasion, an Israelite man was thrown into the tomb of Elisha because they were under attack, and when his body touched the bones of Elisha, that man came back to life, 2 Kings 13. The widow of Nain's son was brought back to life by Christ, Luke chapter 7. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead also, Luke chapter 8. He gave, of course, life to Lazarus after he had been dead for four days, John 11. Our Lord Himself, He walked from the tomb and was brought back to life by the power of God. Following the resurrection of Jesus, a number of saints came forth from the grave, Matthew 27. Peter told Tabitha to get up after she had died, and she did, Acts chapter 9. Finally, Acts chapter 20, Paul restored to life a young man named Eutychus who had fallen from the window after having fallen asleep while Paul was preaching. Now those are ten recorded events in the Bible where a person or people came forth from the grave. I wasn't aware that there were just ten occasions when that happened. In my study of the Bible all these years, I just thought it was chock full of people being raised from the dead from beginning to end. But even having understood that, it's not unique, is it? In reading the Bible, there's not one single person who was raised from the dead, and that's a unique happening in the world at that time. It wasn't very common, but it was not unheard of. But, 
within those accounts, there is a very unique situation. There is a very unique person who was born into this world, who lived in this world, and who died in this world, having been raised from the dead to live again. And now he is unique because out of all of these examples that we read of, anyone that we read of in the Bible who was brought back from the dead, who lived again after death, that person died again, except for this one individual. And that's Christ. He rose from the dead to never die again and that will never happen in this world again and it has only ever happened one time on this side of eternity now at the end of time on the last day when our Lord returns everyone who has ever lived will be raised from the dead again to never die The unfaithful will die in the sense of being separated from God for eternity, but they will still be in existence. Those who are faithful will come forth out of the ground. They will be uh, turned into a spiritual body and they will go on to live with the Lord to never die again. But Christ has never died again once He come up out of the grave. I've entitled this sermon this morning, I Know That He Is Alive. And I think when we we look at this appearance of Christ on the seashore, as is recorded for us in the passage and was read for us this morning, I believe that we're going to notice some things that will strengthen our faith. We're going to notice some things that will embolden our dedication to God. And I think we're going to notice some things that will fortify our assurance that we serve a Lord who is alive today. He died, but He came out of the tomb to never die again. And I know that He is alive, and you know that He is alive this morning because of the things that He did in this life, and we're going to notice those examples in the very passage read for us this morning. I know He is alive because our first point is He finds His sheep. He finds his sheep. Only Jesus is able to find wandering sheep who have left the fold after having life restored to his body. All the supposed prophets of the past, they're not alive today. Muhammad, the revered prophet of the Muslim religion, died on June the 8th, 632 A.D. Do you know where he is today? He knows nothing of the world today because the life that he left is not open to view from those who have gone on before. Anything that has happened since his death, he is not aware of it. He's just a a simple man like any other man who was ever born. Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 9, beginning with verse number 5. He said, For the living know that they shall die. But the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Now many people have taken this passage and they have created whole doctrines out of the idea that a person once he dies who is not faithful to God just simply ceases to exist. 
because Solomon says he doesn't know anything. But notice what Solomon said he didn't know. He didn't know about love, hatred, envy. Where? Under the sun. Muhammad doesn't know anything about this life because this life is happening under the sun. Solomon's talking about the physical life. Only a risen Savior is able to walk out of the grave to never die again and have access and knowledge to the things happening in this world. That's what Jesus did when He found His disciples fishing. He found some wandering sheep, didn't He? What did Peter say? Well, I'm going to go back fishing. The disciples said, well, we're going to go with you. I'm sure that in, in Peter's mind as those men attempted to return to life, the life they lived before Jesus called them into His service. I'm sure He thought that it was over. He was, But Christ was not finished yet with them. He wasn't finished with those men. He had called them into service, and really they had yet to begin the real service for which He had called them. He found those men, and He can find us when we wonder. When the faithful wonder from God... Only a risen Savior, one who is alive, can find his wandering sheep if we allow it. But that's not the only people that he can find. Oh, he's able to find wandering sheep. But he is also able to find the willful, those who are not his sheep, but that who he wants to have the opportunity to become his sheep, to become his people, if they will allow that. Why was it Jesus came to earth? Luke 19.10, to seek and to save that which was lost. Now we're talking about all the people who had ever lived and all the people who had ever died up to this point. A vast majority of those people who lived and died were not of the Jewish faith. Now Jesus did come initially in His ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but His message was for the whole world. We go back to Genesis chapter 11 and the promise given to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through the coming Messiah. And so fortunately for us, not being members of the Jewish race, but being Gentiles, that message has come down to us. Notice what Paul told those in Corinth after having listed the many sins or many of the sins of the world. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. They were Gentiles, they were uh, Greek in origin, and, and Paul took the message of life to them and they obeyed that message and they became his sheep, coming out of a life of willfulness. Only a living Savior can do that. Only a Savior who walked out of the, out of the tomb to never die again can call the world to repentance. And he's done that, hasn't he? He's called the world to repentance. He's called us, and Paul said, through our gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. I know he is alive, and I know that you know that as well, because he finds his sheep. But he also feeds his servants. That's our second point. He feeds his servants. Our Lord will supply to us all things that are necessary that we cannot supply 
for ourselves. Peter encouraged his readers. 2 Peter 1, 3. He said, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Only a living Savior is able to do that continually. Only a true Savior, only the God of heaven can do that, can can provide for us the things of this life that we cannot provide for ourselves concerning life and godliness. What can we not provide for ourselves in this physical world? Well, we can't provide the atmosphere, can we? We can't provide the rain or the sunshine. We can't provide the, the earth wherein we can grow crops or we can't create the animals that He has provided for us who continually produce after their own kind. We can't produce any of those things. But He's given that to us. That pertains to life, doesn't it? And He gives us those things that pertain to godliness. His Word, His message, His commandments, the things that He wants us to do. We, we don't have the mind of God and we're not able to come with that plan. In fact, Jesus asked this question in... Matthew 6, beginning with verse 28. He said, Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? He said, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? O ye of little faith, therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. God will provide for us the necessities of life, for which we cannot provide for ourselves. Now, does that mean that He will make us wealthy and that we'll always have a full stomach and and a nice warm place to live? Well, no, that's not what He's saying. We can provide those things for ourselves if we do what He's asked us to do. If we'll work and we'll make money and we'll be honorable in our lives and we'll be honest in our work ethics, we can provide those things for ourselves. But we can't provide the oxygen that comes in our atmosphere. We can't provide the sun. We can't provide the, the, the way that the moon uh, interacts with our uh, gravity here on earth and the gravitational pull and, and how it affects the tides. and We can't cause the seasons to change and things like that. He'll provide that for us. I think he's also talking about special providence, though, in Matthew 6.33. Special providence for the, the Christian who is faithful to God. He'll add the things to us that we need. And that doesn't mean bad things do not happen to good people. But what it does intend and what his main point is, is you follow God. And don't we read that in the passage for us this morning. Peter said, well, what about this man? The one who leaned on your breast and asked you who would be the traitor. He said, in essence, what he said was, what's that any business of yours? You follow me. I think that's the point of Matthew chapter 6. We need to concentrate on following a risen, living Savior. That's what's necessary. It's necessary that we know His will. 
it's necessary that we understand what He wants us to do. And that's the main way that He feeds His servants. He feeds us. He supplies what we need. Notice what Paul told the elders in Ephesus. Acts 20 verse 28. He said, Take heed thereunto unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now that's the kind of feeding that Jesus is concerned with. He wants us, of course, to have the necessities of this life or else he would not have provided them for us. But the main point of his teaching and his interaction with mankind is that he feed us spiritually, that he gives us the food that he told these elders in Ephesus to make sure that the flock received, the flock over which he had made them overseers. It was their responsibility. Our living Savior has supplied our needs, and he feeds his servants. Jesus will supply our needs. And I want us to notice how he does it. Let's notice the example in our passage. He does it in surplus, doesn't he? He gives us way more than in reality that we need. Do you remember how many fish they said that they caught? An abundance of fish. More than they needed to eat on that morning. It was an overabundance. And when they received that overabundance of fish, it was at that point that they recognized who the Savior was. They realized that He was the one who supplied those kinds of things. And when we look at the surplus of blessings He has given to the church, what do we need to do with that? We need to do all that we can to share those with someone else, right? Isn't that what happened on that seashore? What did Jesus ask them to do? He said, cast your net. They cast the net. They brought up this abundance of fish. And what did He say? He was sitting on the seashore. He had built a fire, had some coals, had some fish and some bread. He said, bring your fish up here. Let's put those on the fire. What were they to do with their fish? This, this oversupply, this surplus of fish, they were to share it with others. What's the application to that? It has to be one. Christ gives us a surplus of blessings in this life more than we could ever enjoy on our own. We'll never use them up. So what do we do with them? We better be sharing them with someone around us. And I don't mean just financially. We're talking spiritually. As well. If my prayer life is what it should be, if I'm thankful to God for the great many blessings that He has given to me, that ought to be on my mind, and should I not want to tell someone else about it? I think we see that in our example. Jesus has given a commandment to His people, and He expects that commandment to be fulfilled. Read, all, uh, read His words with me again, Matthew 28 beginning with verse 18. We're all very familiar with this passage. Jesus went up to the disciples or came unto the disciples after His resurrection and prior to His ascension back in heaven. One of the last things that, that He spoke to them in this world. And He told them, He said, All authority has been given unto Me in heaven and on earth. And since that's the case, since He is the living Savior, since all authority has been given to Him, since He supplies our needs, He feeds His servants, He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. 
And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. There is another example in our passage this morning that allows us to say, I know He is alive. Only a risen Savior can forgive our sins. That's our third point. Only a risen Savior can forgive our sins. In our text, He forgave the sins of an apostle. Of course, we remember the background of that. On the night that Jesus was arrested and uh, taken through the process of going from king to governor through one kangaroo court to the other, what happened to Peter? Well, Peter began to distance himself, didn't he? He began to fall back and he wasn't following along with the crowd uh, that was close to Jesus. He began to stand on the outside and on the outlaying areas and he began to warm himself by the fires of those people who were not believers in Jesus and they recognized him. And they asked him, aren't you one of those? Aren't you a disciple of Jesus? And he said, no, I'm not. Well, a second occasion happened, and again he was recognized, and someone said, aren't you a, you're a Galilean, aren't you a, a member of that sect? No, I, I don't know the man. And then the third time he was asked, he cursed, and he said, I don't know who he is. And so Jesus came, and I think the risen Savior was giving, Jesus, giving Peter an opportunity to repent on that seashore. You remember what he did? Zach read for us. He asked him, do you love me? You know I love you. He said, do you love me? He said, you know I love you. A third time he said, do you love me? And it bothered Peter and it grieved him. And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Do you think it was coincidence that he asked him three times if he loved him? I don't think that was coincidence. I think he was allowing Peter to repent of the sin of denying his Lord for three times. When he had an opportunity to share what he knew was the truth with those around him. And he did repent. Jesus wants to give the world an opportunity to repent of sinfulness, of not living in accordance with his law. But that's been God's character from the very beginning, hasn't it? We see it in his great patience that he offers to the world. He allows us ample opportunity to be able to repent as long as time is in existence. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 4, he said that God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And like Peter, the Lord gives us opportunity to repent and to be saved. I think one of the wonderful things about a risen Savior is He extends His hand of help and opportunity to all people. Not just to those who, who were His close disciples. He rebuked an apostle. He gave an apostle an opportunity to be forgiven of sins. But He wants to be an advocate for all of us. Not just to those whom He loved so dearly in a personal relationship. If anyone will obey the gospel, He'll be an advocate for that individual as well. And He's provided for us a very clear path, a very clear plan on how to gain entrance into heaven and and, and we know it, it's God's plan of salvation. It's Christ's plan of salvation. It was an agreed on way for mankind to become justified in the sight of God. When I say agreed on, I mean within the Godhood, within the three personalities who make up God. 
And when, when one follows those examples, Jesus, our risen Savior, who is alive today, will welcome us into His church. That's the very reason He allowed Himself to be murdered and hung on the cross, wasn't He? That's the very reason that, that He allowed Himself to be mistreated in this physical world because He loves us and He wants us to be members of His church. John wrote this, 1 John 2, beginning with verse 1. He said, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Jesus takes our part. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Just as in supplying our needs physically, He supplies our needs spiritually. How do we we make amends for what we've done in this life as far as sin goes? Well, personally, if if we were going to have to pay that price, we'd have to give our lives, our spiritual lives. We'd have to be punished eternally in hell. But Christ took our place. He became our sacrifice. An innocent man shed innocent blood so that we might know heaven. And He'll plead our case. He'll plead our case before God and before the great accuser and say, no, I paid that price. Enter into the comfort of our Lord. We can say, I know He is alive because He finds His sheep, because He feeds His servants, because He forgives our sins. And finally, this is our last point. We know He is alive because He focuses our service. In our text... Peter was given a new direction in life. Jesus told him to feed and care for his sheep, didn't he? Do you love me? Yes, I love you. We'll feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. We'll feed my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Well, then feed my sheep. He was given a new direction. Peter probably thought his service was over. He probably thought the Lord was finished with him after that night, after having been arrested. He thought that it was all over, I'm sure. But as long as there is life, guess what we have? We have hope. We have hope. As long as there is life. All of us have failed God in some way. All of us have done something that God does not appreciate. But notice that He is also the great restorer, isn't He? We look through the Bible and we notice that He restored a murderer like Moses. He restored an adulterer like David. He took an angry, Christ-hating Jew and made him the wonderful Apostle Paul. He took a loudmouth, cursing Christ-denier like Peter and restored him. If he can restore those people, can he not restore people who have done much less? Sure he can. Sure he can. We're not murderers. We're not adulterers. We believe in Christ. But sometimes we need restoration, and He is the great restorer. But before we can have that, before we can have that direction, we have to have the desire to have it. We have to have that desire. Peter's focus of service can be summed up in two words. Jesus spoke those two words to him twice in our passage. Follow me. Follow me. It's that simple, isn't it? 
Only a living Savior is able to produce a desire like that. Follow me. Jeremiah warned. Jeremiah 10, 23, he said, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. The living Savior can direct our steps if we have the desire for him to do that. He can make all the difference in the world, can he? He can make the difference between a life wasted or a life lived, reaping eternal blessings all to the glory of His name. He's able to do that. Are each of us able to say this morning that we are living our lives under the, under the direction of the risen Savior? Can we do that? Can we honestly say Jesus is directing our paths? Can we look into our lives and at this very moment Understand that we are what God wants us to be. That doesn't mean sinlessly perfect. But that means faithfully striving to be what He wants us to be. Not using excuses saying, well, that's just the way I am. I just can't do it. It's too tough. That's not faithfully striving. But can I say I'm doing that? Are the levels of our dedication where it ought to be if we're going to to gain the rewards of heaven one day? There's no doubt in my mind, just as there is no doubt in your mind. He is alive, sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling over His kingdom at this very moment. He is alive. I know He is alive. But here's the question. Is He alive in me? He's alive. But is He alive in me and is He alive in you? That's the question we must answer. Did I obey the gospel? Did I become a Christian the way that He's asked me to do that? We talked about the gospel plan of salvation. What is that? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. Hebrews eleven six. Peter demanded that we repent and be converted. Acts three nineteen. The Ethiopian eunuch made the good confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, acknowledging that before others. He also went down into the water and was baptized. Why? The same reason that Saul, the, uh, who became Paul the Apostle was. And I said, Arise and be baptized, washing away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And he lived a faithful life. He that endureth to the end shall be saved. Matthew ten twenty two. If we've done that, yet we've become unfaithful, remember, Jesus is the great restorer. God is the great restorer, and He can restore us to Him. We do that through repentance and prayer, confession, whether publicly or privately. Jesus is alive. But is He alive in each of us? That's a question to answer this morning as we stand and as we sing.